Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. here because we're the best kept secret at the Berkshire International Film Festival, but they are, I think, it's fair to say, the coolest looking audience that we've ever had. So let's uh, make some noise, make some applause noise so we know that you're, give your, give your hairstyles a round of applause uh, because you're very cool looking. Um, All right, so we're here at the Berkshire International Film Festival, as I already said. Uh, We're live because we like to be live. We have filmmakers here. We have America's Greatest Living Film Critic, David Edelstein, uh, here from Fresh Air, CBS Sunday Morning, uh, and New York Magazine. Uh, And with us, you're going to meet a whole bunch of filmmakers as we go along today. Right now, we've got one who's under a certain amount of time pressure, so we're going to get to her uh, right away. But also up on stage, we have Lee Slimmer. Uh, Her film, Creed Moria, is playing up here. You'll hear uh, all about that. But first, we want you to meet Lara Stolman, who basically shouldn't even be here on stage right now because her film uh, swim team is screening very nearby, and there's going to be a Q&A with her afterwards. And um, so, Lara, since you have to run, I'm going to kind of start with you. Uh, you know, there's this um, theme for the film festival. It's up here. It's like there's 10 words. You know, it's love and environment and refuge and all these good things. But I think the theme of the film festival is, a sentence I keep hearing, the kind of thing we need right now. You know, people keep looking at any film that has any spark of humanity in it that shows any understanding of underdogs and stuff like that is the kind of thing we need right now. So tell us about Swim Team, which I think is the kind of thing we need right now, this movie. Oh, that sounds so great. Uh, Swim Team is um, a documentary, feature documentary, about the rise of a competitive swim team of diverse teenagers on the autism spectrum. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was very succinct. That was more succinct than I was uh, <laughs> expecting. Um, I just got to see about 20 minutes of it before I had to run over here. Um, and it, it's one of the things I like, like about the movie right away is this coach who is the father of one of the autistic swimmers. But he's also, you know, he's like I think you call him a no pity coach, right? Like he teach, he just treats these swimmers. Like, he just has high expectations for them. Yeah, and that's really the theme of the film. I, I, I say the, the film's about the self-fulfilling prophecy of high expectations. You know, these are kids that basically everyone has given up on. You know, they're teenagers already. And they've been excluded, um, you know, for most of their young lives from gen- general education, Um, from, you know, community social activities, community sports. And here's a guy, he's like a quintessential coach. He's such a great character. Here's a guy who really is not giving up on them and believing in them. And he runs his swim team like it's a team for typical kids. And I say that because, you know, it's, it's very unusual, I think, first of all, to have a team of kids all on the autism spectrum. But um, in my experience, I'm actually the parent of a child with autism, so I, I've, I've had a lot of experience with autism. Um, 
in, a, in, 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 in community sports, any kind of extracurricular activities, you know, generally people don't have great expectations for your kid. Um, and sometimes they're treated with kid, kid gloves and they're just not given the opportunities uh, that typical kids are given. And this guy, Coach Mike in the film, he's a real coach and, you know, he's pretty tough and he has really high expectations for these kids. And, you know, we say zero pity and, uh, and it makes a difference. I think we see that in the film. Laura, when when I met you earlier, I, maybe you winced a little bit because I, I haven't seen your film yet, but I did mention that yesterday I saw a film called Dina, which is an award winner that's going to be playing at uh, in Brooklyn and uh, having some sort of uh, commercial release, and as well as Keep the Change, which won Tribeca for a fiction film, but is made with people on the spectrum. Uh, maybe you winced a little because I was grouping your film in with those, but what I was wondering about is we, we are seeing more people on the autism spectrum, maybe in, in movies and documentaries than, than we have before in a wider range of roles. And, I mean, it's almost as if people are finally coming out of the closet, as it were, and into the light. Do you feel this happening now in the culture? Yeah, I think that there isn't as much stigma anymore, and that's why it's so important for films like these actually to be made and to be seen. It's not that long ago that people with developmental disabilities and, you know, specifically autism were shipped off to institutions. You know, most people's reference is Rain Man. When you say autism, everyone knows Rain Man. That was a film about a guy in an institution. And that's how, that's how we treated people um, with developmental disabilities and autism. And we have not come that far, unfortunately. So there is still stigma. There is still exclusion and ostracization. And, you know, I, it's funny. I winced when you grouped my film with those other films because I don't think my, of this film as an autism film, per se. Um, I, I think it's a film about overcoming challenges, about parenting, about coping, about a lot of stuff. It's actually also a sports contest film. Mm. Um, but I think it's important to talk about it in other ways because we, you know, ultimately, you know, we want, I think, our society to be more inclusive. You know, I think everyone can agree with that. And uh, it's important to see pe people who are different reflected in cinema as well. Well, I usually, I usually begin a film festival by offending as many people as possible, and then... <laughs> she might so, have just winced at your outfit, too. Okay, so, that's um, so, But, you know, Lee, last night we were all sitting here sobbing, watching this movie, Step, which is uh, about these also very under-resourced uh, kids in a Baltimore um, ch charter school who are in a Step competition. Um, in, in a way, watching a little bit of, uh, um, of Swim Team today, I was reminded a little bit of step last night. And maybe that's one of the things that happens at film festivals. We're just exposed to a lot of people's humanity a lot of different ways. Yeah, and the story of survival, right? Mm. So those girls had to survive. The characters in my movie, you know, the lead, she's set up against, um, you know, so much opposition to her good-natured, optimistic self. And mm. so, you know, you're kind of rooting for her to survive. And, and I think... That's the universal story of all of us. I mean, we're, we're here to essentially love and be loved. That's my hippie little, you know, <laughs> quip for the day. But um, really, survival, you know, and 
these times, I think because people are saying we need these movies right now, it's, I think it's because we're being tested in so many ways in a, in a fabric across the board, you know, uh, where to just survive and make your life a happy one in a country that maybe you don't feel like you recognize it anymore mm. the way you used to. I think it's just kind of a universal feeling. So, Lara, you get to answer one more question, and you have to sprint out of here. Um, but maybe just react to what, um, to what Lee's saying. I mean, to me, that's one of the things documentaries do particularly well, put a face on something that we've abstracted or turned into a budget line somewhere. Absolutely. You know, it's so, I, I enjoy so much seeing, you know, a film where I can, you know, meet people that I wouldn't necessarily meet um, and, you know, be able to travel to a niche, a place, you know, that I wouldn't necessarily go to. And, you know, that's how we, um, that's how we feel, you know, we're able to feel empathy and, uh, you know, recognize our common humanity. Mm -hmm. And certainly that's, you know, one of the reasons why I was motivated to make my film. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, you know, we, we need to recognize that, you know, we might, people might seem different to us. We judge, you know, we're constantly judging and categorizing and, and, and yet we're, you know, it's a, a simple idea, but sometimes it's hard to remember. We all have so much in common. We have more in common than we don't. And sometimes it's a good, you know, solid film that makes you realize that it's, you know, like Roger, I love the Roger Ebert quote about film being, you know, an empathy machine. Mm -hmm. So, Lara Stolman, Run uh, Like the Wind. We should say, just from the business point of view, that Lara's uh, film is going to get a theatrical release, so it'll be Oscar eligible, it's gonna be released in selected cities, and then it's moving over onto uh, PBS too, right? It's gonna be on POV, actually, POV. October 2nd. October 2nd on POV. And POV, if you go to enough film festivals, is one of the great heroes of the documentary movement and has been for, you know, 20 years or so, right? right. Yeah, yeah, wonderful fund a lot of showcase great stuff. of nonfiction right. cinema. I don't want you to be late. You have to Thank you be, so much be careful for going down those yeah. stairs because we don't want anything bad to happen to you. We're going to uh, have Colin, a little time. Let me just let me just say that the, it's it's wonderful. This reminds me of what what's so great about going to a film festival like the one here in in the Berkshires or 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 many of them around the country. People are always talking about uh, a film as an escapist medium. Um, when you go to a film festival, when you line up after film after film after film, it's anything but escapism. It's 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 like a, it's a way of getting closer to the world, not leaving it. Um, we're so in our own bubbles these days, uh, mm. more and more so as the culture gets more and more private. You go see these movies, maybe the filmmaker is here, you see it with people who want to talk about it, want to ask questions about it, and you really feel as if your mind is opening up to all these things that, that you know, Facebook just, you know, doesn't that provide. That just makes me want to get up and hug you right now. <laughs> Resist that temptation. Um, <laughs> Must be the shirt you're wearing. Well, yeah, you, but you've been doing, you've been up to a lot of festivals now. Did you, did you tell me last night? Is it the seven or eight or something like I that? I think something like that. We lost count um, <laughs> around our 20th award. <laughs> Only kidding. <laughs> Not really. That, the person talking, by the way, is Lee Slimmer. Uh, her uh, film, as we said before, is Creed Moria. Um, if you look her up, she's Alicia Slimmer. There's no such person as Lee Slimmer. Look Google me up. Yeah, look her up and look up Creed Moria. So just quickly, uh, without using that one particular word that I encouraged you to use earlier today, give people a kind of a, give them your elevator pitch about Creed Moria. Um, you know, it's really about optimism and this girl who just strives to have the stinking best day ever, no matter what she faces. And the movie set it up against the backdrop of Creedmoor, which is a real mental hospital, and Queens was the largest mental hospital in New York uh, once upon a time. And um, 
So, you know, it's set against this world because the real unsettled dysfunction is happening inside her house with a domineering mother, inside her job with a dickhead boss, inside her high school with her psycho, you know, is the FC, am I not allowed to say that? No, well, you, did, you just did, so whatever. Okay. I mean, I, and, and I have to say, in defense of using that word, in the actual credits for the, whoever the, the actor is who plays that role, he doesn't really, oh, that person is in the audience? Yes, yeah. that's why it looks so good in the first row. Oh, so... Um, it just boy. says dickhead manager. It doesn't, it doesn't oh, there's no real yeah. name, right? There's no, that like, is his name that, in the movie. Oh, that is his name. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of crazy. And then, um, you know, her, she has a younger brother dealing with his sexuality. It's, it's in the 1980s in Queens. And um, homosexuality, you know, it wasn't even part of the lexicon, really. And so you kind of secretly wish for her to break out and to rise, kind of like Step did last night, rise above the constraints of the world you grew up in. Grew up in. Did you have a question, Mr. Film Critic? No, I was just thinking that I uh, grew up in a mental hospital, and so I'm very eager to see the film. <laughs> um, and I, no, actually, that's, that's literally true. My parents were both uh, MDs, and they made the mistake of having me while they were in medical school thinking they could do it. I'm not so, going to say that explains a lot because that would be mean. <laughs> well, they passed me on to, they couldn't, they couldn't raise me till the age of three, so they passed me on to my grandfather who was a psychiatrist and was the, the superintendent of the Allentown State Mental Hospital, Whoa. which was one of the biggest mental hospitals, residential facility, mental facilities in Pennsylvania. And I, literally grew up there because I, I was there all the time. And so the atmosphere in the 70s and the 80s in these places before all the massive cuts, bef before, uh, well, I, I mean, I, if you get no, me started yeah, on this, it's going to, yeah, right. yeah. So, the I mean. The point is Martin Scorsese has already acquired the rights to David's life story. So don't even think <laughs> about trying to, to do this. Yeah, no, there's just no conversation really to be had there. <laughs> you know, one thing that I want to ask about, you, so you go to all these festivals and people see your movie and, you know, I mean, still, the, after this, I don't know how many festivals, uh, uh, how many editions of this festival I've been to now, but one thing that's clear is it's still, it's a difficult path, right? You've devoted years of your life to making this movie. Now you're devoting a lot of time to getting it seen by people. What, uh, what, what's your overall hope for this? What's your, you know, what do you want to have happen to Creed Moria? What's, or what's realistic maybe to have happen to Creed Moria? Um, you know, well, that dream died when it didn't get into Sundance and I didn't get offered all the great distribution deals I was hoping for. Um, so for now, you know, the film festivals have been the best because mm. it is the greatest place where indie films can be seen. There's so many films right now, but there's also so many festivals popping up, and now there's so many platforms to watch your movie. So mm. as much as I was beholden to the idea of a theatrical release, and I really, my movie is so stunningly, like just the colors, it's vibrant, like it's, mm. it's so great to see it on a screen like this. Um, I, I'm now resolved to you know, the hope that it'll be streaming at a little device near you in the future. And um, that, you know, I just want people to share it because the message is one of, of hope and hopefully with kids out there struggling in different capacities, they'll, they'll uh, you know, they'll, they'll take something from Sun it. Sundance is important, but they do make mistakes. Yeah. And uh, it's too bad that they are, uh, that it is so dependent on, uh, there are, people I know, do distributors circle around this 
festival? I mean, are there are there? I mean, there's there, that this festival specifically. I think there's a lot of heavyweights in the industry, which has kind of been fun. Mm. Yeah, Josh Braun is here, and he yeah. handles a lot of independent deals, yeah. and he's he's actually on one of the juries. Um, and uh, the, these names don't mean anything to people at home, but they are hugely important in the world of independent films. People who come in and say, "I love your movie. I would like to bring it to to all these distributors." and Mm -hmm. I mean, this is this is the hope. But in in if you can't have that, just to be able to to see it with an audience that really is there because they want to be there and really wants to meet you, and I mean, it is a it is a it is a public experience, and and it's something that you share. It's something that that everybody is going to be going through in the next. I, I it, it sounds like I'm a, a utopian to me. The the uh, any utopia. Any utopia, any brave new world that we that we live in, is going to have a film festival. Um, it's going to have really good meals, and it's going to have a film festival. <laughs> in fact, I mean, there are a lot more film festivals now. I mean, you know, even in the last in Connecticut, there's you know four or five of them now. I Seriously, mean, Connecticut? Yeah, yeah, Ridgefield has one. And you know, a, I have to say, some of the smaller festivals too are proving to be. You know, who knows if there'll be the next South by? But I was at a tiny festival in Bay City, Michigan, mm -hmm. which is up there with one of my favorites. And and the reason is because. They're not Detroit, so they don't really have a music scene. And this music and film festival is bringing the culture to the people and the and the villagers. Uh, sounds like a horror movie now. Um, they actually take time off of work so that they can just concentrate on the festival. So you get to see the same faces day in and day out, and it becomes this one big happy family. It's like they hold parades. There are, I mean, <laughs> the yeah. local businesses get involved and the audience, everybody who's listening right now can come here. You are within driving right. distance. Well, and, and actually, up here, there's a tremendous uh, retiree population up in the Berkshires, people who have their retirement homes. So most people's reaction to your film will be, it was very cold. Uh, they're just cold the entire time. <laughs> uh, it was a very nice movie, but it was cold. I was, I was cold the whole time. Uh, uh, but that's something. Well, I, w I wanted to quickly ask both of you about this, and then we will uh, take a little break and uh, get uh, Christy involved in the show too. But um, that the whole idea of, okay, I'm going to watch your movie, Creed Moria, on a screen, uh, and I would never watch it on a small device. But increasingly with Chromecast and Roku, these people can push it up onto some kind of 46-inch screen at their house with 1080pi or whatever. I mean, but as a filmmaker, I, I think I know what the critic is going to say about this, but maybe I don't. As a filmmaker, does that give you a little solace, the notion that maybe people are going to watch it kind of big anyway? Not the way that you wanted it, but but kind of big because people can do that just on their own now. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm totally encouraged. Listen, I, I watch all my stuff on my laptop right now. My daughter, she does too. I just heard that Game of Thrones is going to screen the pilot, you know, of the next season theatrically on big screens. And that, to me, is so exciting. Because, In Brooklyn, you told me last night, right? Yeah, because yeah. uh, I heard about it here at the festival. But, <laughs> you know, if, if this is the trend, you know, because we have so many beautiful theatrical houses that are, aren't really being utilized. And if we can start maybe crossing the line, bring t TV shows and stuff, like, I'm, I'm all for it. So, you know, I, I don't care where they watch my movie. You can project it on the back alleyway, you know, somewhere <laughs> in Queens. Um, it, just to have it, have the possibility that it's out in the world is what makes me happy. 
You'll see, you say that now. Five years from now, you're yeah, going to be the person. Yeah, totally take it Why back. This sucks. Right, send the right print here. Uh, all right. You were I, just holding I your sign. I just know I don't uh, because I, I don't have an answer. I, I Look, I think film should be a public medium. I think we should all come together on a big screen without the damn remote in our hand. I would like it if we didn't control the control it as much because I think we pay more attention when there's a projectionist or whatever the person does these days in the age of, of digital projection. But I'm realistic enough to know that, look, I mean, I, I do a weekly review for Fresh Air and, and CBS Sunday Morning and used to be I couldn't really talk about movies that only opened in big cities because people would get angry if they didn't have access to them. Now I can review a movie that is uh, appearing maybe theatrically in New York and LA, but at the same time is, is available on demand for you know tens of millions of people across the country. So if they can see it, if, if they can find a niche, as mainstream films have become more oriented to you know, $200 million blockbusters that have to make $800 million in order to, to sort of pay off and create a franchise and a tentpole and a universe and all the rest of these things. There, there has to be room in the culture for, for, for niche marketing, and that is going to happen through our devices. And I only hope that well, in 10 years, it'll be virtual reality anyway, so we'll, all, right. we'll all plug yeah. into I'll these. I'll be sex and these... food plunging towards the necropolis. <laughs> um, all right, so we're about to lose our entire live, live audience, I think, because they're all part of the Lee Slimmer posse. But, um, but nonetheless, and you've got to get over to a screening of Creed Moria, right? Yeah, 145. So um, we're going to grab a break right here, uh, and the audience is going to go, and uh, Lee is going to go. But you're going to get to meet Christy McGill, who's really... Uh, she's, she's the bomb, and thank you so much for having me. All right. Big hand from the posse. We'll take a break. We'll be right back from the Mahewe. There's pleasure for all of the family. So take this suggestion from me. Oh, let's go out to the movies. They're better than ever before. All right, we're back. We're live from the beautiful Mahewe Theater. It feels like an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical now, like the, the, the audience left. We're just sort of alone here up on stage. But it's actually a beautiful stage to be up on, and we have a uh, wonderful company. One thing I, I didn't know that was a, w one of the stars of Creed Moria was sitting out in the audience before, and it's somebody from The Hunger Games, which is turning out to also be a documentary. Um, we didn't know that at the time. Um, <laughs> So joining us on stage uh, is uh, the producer uh, of the documentary, uh, one of the many uh, much-anticipated documentaries here, Serenade for Haiti. Uh, Christy McGill is joining us now on stage with David Edelstein, who is, of course, America's greatest living film critic. And, you know, Christy, you were talking the other day, yesterday, about the isolation that you feel sometimes up at a film festival where you're just focused on movies and talking to your, you know, your, your peers and stuff like that, and you don't know about the news. And you sort of said, I've missed all the news today, right? And then somebody... <laughs> Somebody piped in and said, oh, uh, we're no longer part of the Paris Treaty, yeah. climate treaty, and yeah, it was a moment. In defense of Donald Trump, he had only found out that morning that the Paris Accords were not about accordions, <laughs> uh, so he had to really sort of do a lot of catch-up. Um, so tell us quickly about Serenade for Haiti. Oh, sure. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here and, and to be with you both. What a, what a privilege. Um, and my posse, I'm saying a huge hi to them. They're actually <laughs> virtually here. They're in They're San screaming. Francisco and shooting in Louisville, Kentucky and doing lots of great things. Yeah. 
Um, Serenade for Haiti is a documentary feature film that tells the story of a remarkable classical music school uh, located in the heart of a, of a tough city, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, mm. um, that has been in operation since 1956. And bringing into the world um, incredible uh, graduates, musicians, they seated the National Symphony Orchestra of, of Haiti. Um, and it's a story about also what happened when the 2010 earthquake destroyed the entire um, entire school. The director of the film, Owsley Brown, and his wonderful um, cinematographer, Marcel Cabrera, had wrapped shooting after two years in Port-au-Prince, telling the story of this incredible place, um, uh, and returned. they had returned to San Francisco to our offices to begin the long process of looking at 150 hours of interviews and B-roll and getting translations going. Um, when two or three weeks later the earthquake happened and uh, terrible, terrible tragedy of, it's almost impossible to describe the, the level of, of tragedy and um, decision was made that should the subjects of the school be willing to uh, continue to tell their story that um, Owsley decided I want to go back and I want to help and and, and discover how they are. We got a great concern for their welfare. Mm -hmm. um, and he and Marcel and a sound recordist named Richard Fleming, who's, who's absolutely wonderful, um, spent a lot of time in Haiti. They went back and we continued to shoot for a couple of years. Uh, I became part of the process as a creative producer after the earthquake to try to help figure out what we were going to do now with the story and the footage that and the interviews that we had was joined by another wonderful producer named Anne Flatte. And um, we went back to Haiti. I went back with Owsley and Marcel and the small crew and field produced the final third of the film in 2014 and found, you know, um, this country still in a, a terrible state of, of disarray and yet this remarkable community that had refused to stop operating. And, refused to stop playing music and rehearsing and educating children in formal classical music instruction despite losing literally everything. The, the performance hall, the rehearsal rooms, their classrooms, um, everything. You know, David, we're back to that whole question of movies being empathy machines and also movies just putting a face on, on stuff that is very easy, it's very easy to get glib about stuff like things that are happening in, in far-flung locations to people that we don't see every day. Well, what I was saying before is this is how we, how we grow and change. If I, I have this fantasy that if we could get certain politicians in and turn on this empathy machine, that maybe there would be, they, they would not spend as much time sowing hatred and, and contempt for the other. Maybe we wouldn't somehow or other in this Christian nation, refugee has become a dirty word mm -hmm. as the refugee, uh, you know, people who are supposed to reach out and, and be, you know, welcoming and with open arms now are uh, suspicious and xenophobic and don't understand the, 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 the monstrous poverty and injustice in the rest of the world and this is it this is I, I don't want to make it sound as if the festival is only things that are good for you like mm -hmm. there are actually crazy escapist you know movies here and movie stars as well and 
documentary about eating bugs that I'm looking forward to. And a documentary about no comedians getting nose jobs. About comedians getting <laughs> nose jobs. So it's not just, you know, it's not just stuff that's good for you, but it, it is, um, you know, I'm I'm going to be watching this movie, and uh, I I know that it's going to change my world. Movies have the capacity to do that. Christy, one thing I wanted to ask you about. I ask this every time I'm at the film festival, and I never get a satisfactory answer. Uh -oh. But no, but you were saying it last night, so I thought, oh, good, I'm going to get a satisfactory answer. I was sort of wonder what it's like for filmmakers to go to film festivals where you're with other filmmakers. You were saying last night that you, you, this is where you see each other, right? There's just no way you're going to see a lot of other filmmakers any other way. So what happens then? What, like, what do you get out of that part of it? Well, I'm so glad you brought it up because it gives me a chance to thank uh, Kelly and her incredible team, Carolyn, here at the Berkshire Film Fest International Film Festival, they did something remarkable, and they've been doing it for some years now. They put together something called the Filmmaker Summit, where they invite uh, the filmmakers of films being showcased here to come early. Mm. And we just spent two of the most amazing days in this beautiful part of the world um, in some gorgeous uh, locations, talking about film, talking about filmmaking, learning from uh, industry pros in everything from digital marketing strategies to we were we were really privileged to have um, head of HBO Sheila Nevins among us yesterday to talk about her experiences um, at this you know groundbreaking place called HBO which has mm. changed a lot of lives. She Sheila Nevins, let me just add, is here doing a, a book signing uh, today, and she is really one of the true heroines of. Uh, of the documentary movement in really the last 25 years. I mean, she has commissioned so many amazing films. She has supported so many, I mean, she is, she's really kind of a god. I mean, people, people, it's amazing that she's here and that she's, that she actually wrote a book because I once heard her say, ah, who reads books? But <laughs> that, that's kind of how she talks. But uh, she is selling her story. Come, come see her if you if you can. She's a she's a force of nature, and appreciate the um, the amazing array of films that uh, she's helped to get made for HBO, see, and that have had theatrical releases and won Academy Awards too. Well, I mean, actually, Stephen Cantor, who was up here last night with the movie Step, was saying that prior to that, prior to Step, which is going to have a wide release to like 200 screens, I think, uh, he'd just been doing HBO documentaries. That's sort of what, you know, had been his business for a, a really long time, too. You know, the other thing that I was, that I think must be interesting to, to do, Christy, when you get together with other documentarians and other filmmakers in general, like, I have almost no capacity to delay gratification, so I have a <laughs> daily radio show, you know, like, I get done today, and then it's like, you know, a day later, typically, I have to do something else, but I'm sort of happy with that kind of cycle, and I don't know how you guys do this, like, I don't know how, how many years, ultimately, I, I know that you came in, like, sort of halfway through Serenade for Haiti, but so, but even that, it just seems like years and years and years, oh, and then, boy. like, it, I'm not a patient person, so this has been a great karmic uh, challenge for me. But I, I certainly have had to, to, uh, you know, find that that in myself on this project. Uh, the director, Owsley Brown, has been with this film for ten years. Yeah. I a mere five. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you know, it, it's it's this came up with Sheila's talk yesterday um, to the filmmakers. She said the most important. Uh, thing that you need to have to possess as a as a successful filmmaker somebody who can finish the work and, and see it all the way through or is not passion she said you know everybody has passion you wouldn't get involved with these projects if you weren't passionate at all but it's it's discipline resilience 
uh, and patience. And, and you just, you have to be able to serve the film. And that's what I think everybody uh, probably can relate to who is, is here gathered with their films. And then I, I was, you know, had such a great time meeting every, all the other filmmakers. We uh, come back to you know, one mission and that's what is this film, what are we doing? And mm. why are we doing it? And in, in our case, it's a pretty easy thing to reconnect with when you have, you know, you're very humbled by these incredible people, such as the subjects of our film, the St. Trinité Music School in, in Haiti. Colin, you hear that? Discipline, resilience, <laughs> patience. I don't have any of those patience. things. We have to put that up above our desks. <laughs> Discipline, resilience, patience. Well, I've already got this 10-word festival motto yeah. I've got to put, and there's Dreams. just too many words here now. Uh, the other question that I always have about documentaries, and, and I get more of an answer every time I come to something like this. But, you know, David, when you watch documentaries, there's often moments where you think, how, how did filmmakers get these people to agree to be filmed at this particular... Like last night watching Step, you know, uh, actually Stephen Cater said they had 1,000% uh, participation. Everybody wanted this film to happen. Everybody mm -hmm. who's in this film wanted the film to be made. But they're like meetings that are essentially educational conferences that are probably protected by eight layers of, you know, federal it's, law. It's, about, you know. it's changed so much. Yeah. You know, when you when you were back in the, the first Verite films, uh, you know, Fred Wiseman, some of those in the, in the 60s and 70s, it was a real issue whether or not people were going to behave as they normally do on camera or whether the camera was going to dis simply the, the act of filming it was going to change the nature of, of the reality. Now, um, you know, uh, there's no such thing as privacy anymore and everybody is being photographed. We know we're being photographed all the time and people, I think, seem to have a... Uh, either we've become more performers in real life, more <laughs> aware that a camera could be on us at any point, or we have for, learned to forget the camera. Um, it's striking to me to see uh, these two films, uh, not, not Laura's film uh, from before, but... Um, but two films in, that had autism, people on the autism spectrum, um, who seemed to completely adjust to having the camera on them, and mm -hmm. in fact, you know, acted out in ways that that you know often make you a little squirmy to see. I mean, do I do I have a right to invade this person's privacy? To, uh, but it seems as if people. Do you think people have become more comfortable being? Well, it's a fantastic question because, as it applies to Serenade for Haiti, we actually had. A completely different experience because I would agree with you that we're in a really bizarre moment of, of of people not considering their own privacy and sort of giving it away and then stopping and thinking well wait I would like to claw some of that back someone was talking about Anthony Weiner just a minute ago <laughs> we talk <laughs> about Anthony Weiner all the time we can just go back there anytime yeah, it's just a day for us but yeah exactly <laughs> um, Serenade for Haiti it, Haiti's a very different place mm -hmm. and um, the act of documentary filmmaking is itself an invasive act. I mean, you're coming into, this is not a script with actors and who have careers depend upon it. You're interrupting their worlds. You're mm. bringing in, we tried to keep a very small crew, um, but fortunately the director of the film, Owsley Brown, is uh, just a deep uh, respect and love for Haiti. He is um, a very sensitive, amazing um, artist and had built a very wonderful relationship with uh, David Cesar and, and the incredible staff of, that he has in, uh, in uh, Haiti in the St. Trinity Music School. Is it more of a verite thing, uh, a yeah. just watching them, or do they talk to the camera at all? 
Well, we have interviews, so we do we do have the sort of you know we you'll see talking head interviews with um, with some of the faculty and uh, one or two of the children. But but the 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 experience of the film itself is the, the director really wanted an experiential film. We have no um, narration. Mm -hmm. um, we bring you right into we, the lights go down, the film starts, and you are in a classroom, and off we go, and in Haiti. Um, so I think that what what was tough at first was making sure that all the children of the school, um, who are, so many of them are quite young, uh, and felt very comfortable and okay about having about being filmed and being in a film. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we were very privileged and lucky to have a great um, partnership with the head of the school, David Cesar, and the teachers. They seemed to understand that we our our motives were pure. We wanted to tell their story and and share what we found um, with audiences. So I would also just think you. that for the people of Haiti at a kind of uber level, you know, please tell our story. Please tell this story. Please let the no. world know. I mean, they, most people, myself included, before I got involved in this project, what I knew about Haiti was what I saw on CNN. Mm. And it's just disaster crisis footage. I mean, uh, this country, since, you know, the, in the decades since this music school was founded, in 1956 has, you know, had a baby doc, papa doc in reverse order, mm. uh, pandemics, hurricanes, earthquakes, AIDS crisis, um, foreign occupations in its history, and, and it, it, it freed itself from its slaveholders in 1804 in an extremely violent uprising that took maybe 15 years to, to come to completion. That's what, no you hard see, times. that's what you see on the TV news, but we also have one of the important things about movies, about documentaries, is that we've had people like Jonathan Demme, oh, yeah. uh, the late Jonathan Demme, alas, it's, uh, we're still suffering from his loss and will be forever, who l fell in love with this culture so much that he made it a mission to show us the the fabulous, I mean, this sort of ongoing renaissance that Haitian culture represents. And uh, yeah, maybe I just wanted to say the name Jonathan Oh, Demme I'm so happy to hear you, you say it. Because I already miss him uh, so much. We were finish your answer to the question. Perhaps um, I hadn't done so, Colin. The um, the great hope is that the film that we present to, to viewers and audiences will show the Haiti that we found, which is one that was filled with enormous culture and erudition and, and artistry and and and, and this community of, of a very healthy, wondrous, uh, thriving music school that you know people just wouldn't know existed if it weren't for somebody trying to tell the story sometimes. Um, Christine Miguel, so great to visit with you. Serenade for Haiti is playing tw twice here, Saturday Yes, we're 9.15 tomorrow morning in, yeah. in Pittsfield at the wonderful Beacon Cinema, and then 11.15 here at the Triplex in Great Barrington. All right. Uh, so if you're within the sound of my voice, uh, yeah, come on up and see Serenade for Haiti. That's Christy McGill. We're going to take a quick break. Kelly Vickery, who runs this whole show, is going to join us on stage. David is going to tell us uh, how he's going to interview Christopher Plummer in about 24 hours or so from now. So stay with us for that. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf, with help from Katie Tularski, Gina Matruda, Betsy Kaplan, and Sylvia Kinsella. The part of Bill Curry was played by Linda Carter. On Monday's show, we'll be back in our Hartford studios with news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now...
Back to Colin. And we're back here at the beautiful Mahavi, which we're actually talking about here on stage with America's greatest living film critic, David Edelstein from Fresh Air, CBS Sunday Morning and New York Magazine. And now joining us on stage, the person who started all this and continues to make it happen, Kelly Vickery. Uh, she is the founding goddess of the Berkshire International Film Festival. That's where we are. So we were just talking about the Mahavi. You have to quickly say this. So you were a disciple of Pauline Kael. Mm -hmm. She was up here a lot. So well, you went to see That's a loaded, loaded phrase <laughs> these well, days. But I was a friend right. and an admirer, and I adored her, and would come up here uh, when see she movies was in this theater. retired and see movies in the Mahewi. In fact, sometimes directors who loved her, like Phil Kaufman or, or some others I, I can't even think of, would send their movie, Barry Levinson, would send their movies, and the Mahewi uh, projectionists were really great about screening it in the morning before the theater opened, and sometimes you'd be just in this fabulous place watching this movie four or five weeks before it before it hit theaters. And, this and you and Pauline? Yeah, yeah, and then she would get on the phone. She'd immediately Both get on the phone. Knitting? She'd get on the phone and say, honey, it was great, or she'd go, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or the worst phrase, if you ever heard it from her, well, you can get by with it. <laughs> that was the most. That was the most painful. That but hurts, yeah, that hurts even now. <laughs> she lived. She lived just up the road, and and we miss her terribly. So Kelly, before you got here, we're talking a lot about just sort of the things that we see, you know, every year at the festival, but also maybe particularly this year. I, you know, I just got here, and I feel like I've already watched a lot of movies about underdogs, about people without resources, people who can become uh, sort of human services uh, abstractions, whether it's a, a step class in Baltimore in a very uh, urban area or uh, some autistic swimmers uh, in New Jersey or even uh, a mostly undiscovered German female painter. Um, mm -hmm. it, it does seem like, I don't know if that's, I know you've got a 10-word <laughs> motto here that I can't even turn around to read right now, but th that maybe that's one of the things that film does, too, is just tell us these underdog stories at a time when we have somebody running the country who just talks about winning all the time. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of stories out there to tell. It's it's kind of amazing. I mean, we we call through um, you know some 800 films this this past year, and we curated 10% of that. And we you know each story resonates, and some some are underdogs. And for instance, we have um, a, an amazing documentary about Wendell Berry t mm -hmm. um, tomorrow night. And so it's you know it, these stories. I don't know if they're necessarily underdog stories. They're triumphant stories. They're um, beautiful stories there, um, you know, they sort of bring a, a lot of elements together um, for our audiences, but they certainly do, they are resonating with everybody. Certainly Step Last Night opening with that was a, a triumph. Um, I don't think anybody left the theater for the Q&A. No. And people were, you know, came up to me and said, how dare you not tell me to bring a whole box full of tissues? People were <laughs> sniffling. And, and then, you know, this one woman who's sitting here, and I, I know she was speaking for other people. She said, how can we help these girls during the Q&A? Yep. She just said, how, yep. how, where can we send money? How, how can we help these girls? Yeah. It was just sort of, I mean, if you're the documentary filmmaker, you're thinking, well, yeah, that's, I, I was hoping you maybe would have that reaction. Right. You know, what can I do? How can I help? So before we run out of time, we have to talk about this Christopher Plummer thing. So you're going to be on stage tomorrow. So exciting. Oh, yeah. I've, I've actually interviewed uh, Christopher Plummer uh, maybe five or six times. Yeah. And um, he is... He's the he's the most wonderful man. This is a guy who, you know, was was kind of a rich boy growing up, very pampered, and had a reputation as being a real arrogant, you know, sob. In in when he was making the Sound of Music and stuff like that, and he married this great woman, and he 
kind of yeah what Timmy no, no 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 this is no his his current wife and uh, <laughs> I'm trying to get the whole bio no she set him straight and the point what I'm what I'm building up to is after making a lot of Canadian tax shelter movies etc cetera, etc cetera, and kind of fading a little bit he has had one of the great third acts yeah. in uh, in show business period he has played all the great Shakespearean roles and mm -hmm. in the in, I mean in the last decade or so King Lear, Prospero, he has won an Academy Award, he has deepened as an actor to an amazing extent, and I can't wait. He is going to come here, there is a, there is a, there'll be a clip reel, mm -hmm. and a, the audience is going to be reminded that we still have this giant among us, and we should treasure him. Uh, and he's still peaking, he's still mm. peaking. Oh, the, he's got three yeah. movies that yeah. he's working on. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I, I feel like one of the pleasures uh, of this sort of new period of Christopher Plummer, and I think of the movie Beginners in particular. It's, so good. You know, it's it's there, there's sort of three things that can happen with a character. I think in a movie, the other characters in the movie can discover who that person really is, or it can just be set in stone who that person really is. Some of Plummer's villains, you know, they start out as villains and they don't change, or the character can discover himself, and that's what happens in Beginners. Is you see this man discover things about himself, and and for Plummer, I haven't seen everything in that oeuvre, but watching him do that was really exciting because it's a little bit, you know, it's something different than probably people's. I mean, maybe maybe he did it in Sound of Music, too. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, he didn't. Well, that he, character, you know, he sort of yeah. does have to discover who he it's is. It's interesting. He tells a story in his autobiography about seeing his daughter, Amanda. He, they were, he was not a great father, as he admits, on stage and feeling suddenly very jealous of her ability to access emotion in a way that he was always a very showy kind of external actor you know great but I, I think that just was one of the things that kind of led to him looking in and this amazing flood of just one great performance after another including the one that he that he that will he gets, be screening tomorrow night, tonight the exception he, the he exception. played kaiser wilhelm he, kaiser wilhelm the second and he will make you like kaiser wilhelm the yeah. second <laughs> he does. <laughs> and, and actually, there's a nice SS man in the film too. So you will you will like an, uh, an SS man, and you will like the Kaiser. And I don't know what my great grandparents would have said about that, but uh, in the shtetl. But I I think we do know what your great parents, <laughs> yeah, exactly. parents would have said about that. Yeah, and I think uh, Lady Rose from Downton Abbey is also uh, in this movie, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I forget yeah. what her name in real life is. I don't well, know Chris, people who's the character. Christopher Plummer. I do want to just point out yeah. uh, requested when he accepted our invitation. To um, to be interviewed specifically by um, David Edelstein, so we're really proud to have. Um, what do you want to talk David to him about? Well. What are you where, where are you going to go? Do you know? You know the thing. Uh, you know he he's got a lot of he he's such a great raconteur, and his stories are absolutely wonderful. And having the challenges, having heard all the stories, trying both to get you know we only have about half hour forty five minutes is trying to hear some of those great stories, but also maybe to knock him off his game. You know, mm -hmm. throw him a few curveballs. You know how it works, yep. and and uh, and find out you know uh, how things are going. I mean, he's he's what is he about eighty eighty. 87, I 87? Yeah. 87. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's in better shape than most of us. Last time I saw him, yeah. and uh, and also, you know, he he. Every time I've seen him for these five or six years, he says, um, uh, "You must come and you know have dinner with with my wife and me." And I say, "Yeah, absolutely." He says, "I'll I'll call you next week," and uh, I'm hoping that six the sixth <laughs> time is the charm because he never <laughs> follows up. So. Uh, 
so that's that's one of the things I'm hoping. But I th <laughs> I think it's going to be, and and you have also wonderful uh, uh, jury. There's a jury. There are prizes here, yep. and you have people who live around here and who support the festival. I know Peter Rieger yep. and uh, yep. Kent Jones is up yep. from New York. Yes. And, Josh Braun. And and Josh Braun, who we talked about yep. earlier, and uh, Mary, Mary Kay, Kay Place. Yep. Yeah. So so it's, no, we're very lucky. And you, I mean, if you come here enough, to, or to any festival, you wind up having these experiences that you don't forget. Um, and I do remember that when uh, when Tree of Life screened here, mm. and they not too many people had seen it. It's Fox Searchlight sent some you know fabulous print here, and I'm sitting here, and 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 right before it, I was out in the lobby talking. I will now name drop. I was talking to Peter Rieger out in the lobby, and he he'd already seen. I didn't understand this. I said, "Well, I'm pretty excited to see it." And he goes, "Yeah, well, good luck." And he just turns and like walks out the door. I said, "Well, where's he going?" And he goes, "I've already seen it." And so then I had this, as you may remember, I had like an existential crisis watching as I was curled curled in a fetal position the entire time, like whimpering, you know, oh God, Colin. <laughs> watching this. Movie. It just I, I then watched it, it again. recreates your birth. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There I was you go. I was doing exactly what he wanted me to do. <laughs> um, so so there is that. I will say one thing about uh, Christopher Plummer. If he tells a story about this really stupid 26-year-old newspaper reporter who showed up when he was doing Shakespeare uh -oh. in Stratford, Connecticut, and asked him a lot of really dumb questions, uh -oh. that was me. That was you. Uh, and this was before he'd like turned into a nice person. So, <laughs> <laughs> so. He, he was he was he was tough before. He says he he's harder on himself actually than than anyone else's. He says he was a real arrogant, you know. Um, he's he's actually turned. He's become kind. Hmm. Um, well, it happens to all of us sooner or well, later. Well, he's been completely you know. delightful. From well, our yes. Standpoint. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, he, actually, he always had a had a good dear soul. He just yeah. had a lot of defenses before, right. and now he's now he now he's now he's just a nice guy. Well, we can't wait for tomorrow night. Well, we, I can't we do that, wait either. We have to uh, stop now, though. Kelly Vickery, this is your film festival that you started. It's an amazing place. Uh, I just got here. I've already seen two and one-third movies. Uh, <laughs> and uh, thanks to, and I of hope course, many more. Many more to come. Uh, America's Greatest Living Film Critic, David. Edelstein, Everybody come up. Friend. Yeah, come on come up. Come up and buy me a drink. That's okay. <laughs> Everybody buy come, me a drink. David's uh, in the house. Great Barrington. <laughs> All right. Thanks to my incredible staff here, too. Uh, great producers, Jonathan McNichol and Katie Tularski, Betsy Kaplan, uh, Kion Wolf. Special thanks to Sylvia Cancella. We could not do this without Sylvia Cancella. Bye bye now.